0: If you uh, have your Bibles and want to turn to chapter 1 or on your Bible app, or just be patient, it'll be on the screen here in just a moment uh, as well. We'll be uh, coming to Daniel chapter 1 to start our time. Um, so I don't know about you, any of you who grew up with siblings, but I, uh, growing up there were times when my brother and I in particular, I had two sisters and a brother, I'm the oldest and so my brother was four years younger than me, but there are way, way too many times when he and I would get into fights. And um, inevitably, one of our parents would step in, you know, break it up and try and figure out what happened and make peace. But inevitably, one of the statements they would make was, all right, tell your brother you're sorry. Any of you have that happen to you? Tell him you're sorry. What's the problem with that? You don't want to do it. You're not sorry. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, why, 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 So everything within you is just, oh, uh, I just, you know, you just, yeah, yeah it's terrible. Terrible, so yeah. Because even though I'm, even though I might verbally say the words I'm sorry, in my heart there was nothing close to being sorry. Um, Yeah, and just I just yeah. But part of it is the fact that none of us like to be told what to do, do we? And it doesn't matter if you're two years old or a hundred years old. There's something within each of us that resists being forced to do something against our will. It's just human nature. We just don't like to do that. The idea of being forced to do something against our will is really at the heart of the story we're going to look at this morning. Um, So before we jump in, let me give you a little background uh, to what we're going to be talking about here. So 600 years before Jesus was born, so we're talking about the 600, a little right around there um, before the uh, common era. The the Babylonian kingdom was at uh, one of its peaks. um, And so it was the major... Um, empire in the world at that time, at least in that part of the world, um, it covered pretty much all of what we know to be the Middle East today. So all those areas Iran, Iraq, Jordan, uh, Syria, um, and um, you know, even extended into Turkey and into um, Egypt as well. So quite expansive on what they were doing and uh, where, they had, where their reach was being felt. And at that particular time, it, it was the king of uh, Babylon was this guy named Nebuchadnezzar say Nebuchadnezzar. I just like saying that word sometimes. You know, something just Nebuchadnezzar. It's just a great word to say. So the capital of, of Babylon was, by, you'll like this. Know what they named their capital? Babylonia. <laughs> Babylonia was the capital of Babylon. Um, and it was about 600 miles from Israel, due east. And uh, It sat along the Euphrates River. It's about 50 miles. They actually know where it was. It doesn't exist today as a city, but they know that it was about 50 miles south of current-day Baghdad. So they have an idea of exactly where it was. At the time, this was a sprawling, heavily populated area, city. It had enormous walls around it. And uh, also, as it was common then for many uh, people groups at the time, they were what we know as to be polytheistic, which means they worshiped a lot of different gods. Literally dozens of gods, if you look, if you actually do Babylonian uh, religions, you would come up with uh, you know, a couple dozen different names of gods that they worshipped. So that was just part of their culture. Now what's interesting about the Babylonians, even 2600 years later, we still feel some of the influence of their time. Our current numbering system comes from the Babylonians. Um, some of the advances that were made in astronomy at that time comes from the Babylonians and some of their architecture today is still just significant. And uh, so, again, this was a prominent group and a prominent empire at the time, and is still felt today. Well, about this time, 600 years before Christ, Nebuchadnezzar is just part of his expansion. Uh, he invaded, and he came against Israel. And uh, at the time, there was a guy named uh, Jehoiakim, Uh, King Jehoiakim was the the king, and he basically came to Jehoiakim, and and he said, listen, I'll let you stay as king, but you need to pay me um, um, tribute. You need to pay me money if you want to stay in power. And so that was the arrangement, and so he did. Well, after about three years, Jehoiakim said, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like being forced to pay somebody money uh, to do this, and so he rebelled. Well, Nebuchadnezzar came back, and again, they had really no power forced force to, with, with, uh, with, uh, to oppose them. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he took Jehoiakim as prisoner, as well as some of the gold and some of the artifacts from the temple. Remember, the Temple of Israel had a lot of gold for their worship, a lot of different uh, things, and so Nebuchadnezzar took some of that and put it in his own temples uh, back in Babylon. So what's interesting for me is that Nebuchadnezzar came back two more times to have to take care of business uh, with Israel. And uh, about a year later, after you put in Jehoiakim, well, um, after Jehoiakim had been taken out, his son, Jehoiachin, so uh, yeah, it's an interesting uh, name uh, process there, but he didn't just come and attack it. They did what, back in the day, they would do what they called, they laid siege to the city, which means they are surrounded the city with their army and they wouldn't allow anything in or out and so basically they would, become, they would starve or they'd run out of water or there was something that would happen to them. And so we know that they laid siege to Jerusalem and it lasted for about three months that this was happening. And ultimately they, they, they were victorious. And it says this time, and we're getting this from Second Kings chapter 24 is the account of this. But at this point in time, he uh, instead of taking some artifacts from the temple, he carried off all the military officers and fighting men and artisans, so all the, the wood woodworkers and metalworkers and others, all of these were carried back to Babylon so that Israel had no more potential, you know, to, to carry on. And then he installed his own puppet king to be uh, the king there. Well, then about eight years later, this puppet king also said, yeah, I'm tired of this. I don't like paying you tribute. I don't like this. I'm, do, I'm, I'm rebelling. Uh, so again, we just see this. So they came back, Nebuchadnezzar came back again. He laid siege to Jerusalem again, this time for about a year. Um, the Israelites held out for about a year before they were finally um, overrun. This time, Nebuchadnezzar burned everything down. He tore down even the temple. The temple was torn down. Uh, just nothing was left. In fact, it says in 2 uh, uh, Kings, it says, he left behind the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and fields. So there was basically nothing left that, 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 they, that they took. So four times, Nebuchadnezzar sent his army to deal with troublesome kings um, who didn't like being forced to do something against their will. Now, before we start feeling sympathetic, you know, like, oh, this is terrible, we also know from 2 Kings that these were evil, bad kings. So they, they did not follow God. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's coming was part of God's judgment against Israel because of their lack of faithfulness to him. And so Nebuchadnezzar was being used by God in this way. Now, again, all of this comes from 2 Kings, but we also have a personal eyewitness account to one of these um, incidents, one of these times that Nebuchadnezzar came back to to attack Israel. So remember, he said, he came the first time, and he said, we got to pay tribute. He rebelled, and then he came back And that's when he took took Jehoiakim and took him back, and he took some artifacts. That's not the only thing he took back to Babylon at that point in time. As was common, they would take other people, some of their leaders, back. And so in Daniel chapter 1, this is one of that, this would happen during that second time that Nebuchadnezzar came. So if you have your Bible, if you want to follow along, um, we discover then, chapter 1, that Nebuchadnezzar also took some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, picking up with verse 4. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He, who is Ashpenaz, is this guy's great name, he was more like his chief of staff for Nebuchadnezzar. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now we know from, uh, uh, well I say we know, most scholars, most people who've studied this time period in this account, they're pretty much sure that Daniel and these other, Shen, uh, um, I'm sorry, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were about between 14 and 17 years old. So they were teenagers when this was happening. Uh, these were the cream of the crop. In fact, some think that, that Daniel in particular was a descendant of King um, Hezekiah. And uh, so that these were royalty, these were nobility, these were young men who were, in fact, it says that these were people who were very capable, very talented individuals. We also know, just because of the geography, that it was probably a two to four month journey to go back from, to be carried away from Israel back to Babylon. And uh, imagine that. Imagine you're 14, 17 years old, and against your will, you're carried away to another country. You're forced to learn another language. You're forced to learn their culture and way of life. And then you're forced to serve their king and his intentions and purposes. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be very happy in that situation. But that was their reality. That's what their life was now to be like. Daniel and his friends were forced to live in a land that wasn't theirs. It was unfamiliar to them. They are forced to conform to a culture and a way of doing things that was um, not common to them in, in the ways that the Babylonians, in this case, their enemies, those who had defeated them, they're now forced to a- accommodate everything about them. Now, I would suggest to you this morning that our situ- situation today has a number of similarities to Daniel's situation not in a sense of military conquest. I'm specifically, I'm gonna suggest that living as a Christ follower in 21st century US is similar to being a Jewish person living in Babylon during the seventh century before Christ. So let's take a closer look as to what that might look like. One of the areas where we see similarity is then the pressure to change our thinking. Now, as we've already observed, the four young men were forced to change the way they thought about everything. What was up is now down. What was right is now wrong, and vice versa. What about Christ followers here in the 21st century? Um, Some time ago, actually uh, actually 1996, uh, some of you may have heard of this. Uh, A guy in in, uh, Kansas, his name was Joe Wright, he's a pastor, was asked to do the invocation um, at the Kansas State Legislature in January of that year. And uh, if you're familiar with these, the, the intent is that it's a very ecumenical type of prayer. Uh, in fact, you, you know, you're not supposed to mention Jesus, just kind of very dear God or, you know, kind of thing. So <clears throat> Joe Wright um, is a very uh, strong evangelical pastor. His prayer was a little different. He said, and here it is, <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, And that's exactly what we've done. He's just warming up. He said, we've lost our spiritual equilibrium. We've inverted our values. We confess that we've ridiculed the absolute truth of your word in the name of moral pluralism. We've worshiped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We've endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We've exploited the poor and called it a lottery. We've neglected the needy and called it self-preservation. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. Father, in the name of choice, we have killed our unborn. And then in the name of right to life, we've killed abortionists. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building esteem. We've abused power and called it political savvy. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and called it taxes. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We've ridiculed the time-honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. And he wraps up his prayer. How do you think that went over? <laughs> Not well. It was really, what I love about this, he offended both sides of the political aisle. Um, he wasn't just like one or the other. It's like, like, we're all like this. But anybody feel like Pastor Joe? You ever feel like that we have this pressure to change how we think. I know I do many times. <clears throat> so it was that pressure. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think we have in common with, with the, uh, Daniel and the others. There's also the similarity in the pressure to change our identity. Now, if the young men saw themselves as Babylonians, they would more quickly become like Babylonians. So their identity became part of this transition. So in order to accelerate their assimilation into Babylonian culture, the young men were given Babylonian names. So in verse 7 of the passage we just read, the story picks up. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. That's how probably you weren't like, who are these Mishael, no, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is how we know them. <clears throat> it's their Babylonian names. Now this was intentional on the part of Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar wanted Daniel and his friends to conform and a name change was one step towards that. Now what's interesting is years later that the, the queen of Babylon, she still referred to Daniel by his Hebrew name, Daniel. Um, in fact, in, in Daniel chapter 5, a few chapters later, uh, the, the, it says that she, recalled, she spoke of him as Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. So she knew that this and that, but she still referred to him by his Hebrew name. <clears throat> now, I don't know today that any of us have been pressured to change our name. Um, however, I think all of us have been pressured to change our identity. And I'm not talking about this current craze of gender identity. I'm talking about our identity first and foremost should be that of a Christ follower. If somebody asks you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about yourself, how would you do that? What does that sound like? What do you say? I think typically it's, you know, I'm Sam, I'm this old. So we we identify all these other characteristics and I may, depending upon the context, identify myself as a Christ follower. The honest thing is that should be first. I mean, Paul talks about that often in his letters. He says there's no more. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's this, we're all in Christ. That should be our number one identity. <clears throat> what does it mean to be a woman of God? What does it mean to be a man of God these days? How are we to parent our kids in a way that honors God? We certainly don't find any cues within society at large this day, do we? Now, there's also the pressure to change our worship. <clears throat> now, what's interesting, and you may not know this just from reading the passage, but each of the names um, that were given to, to Daniel, Shadrach, or Daniel, uh, the other three. I always forget their Hebrew names because I know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But each of them ha- carries meaning associated with a Babylonian God. So Daniel, where, uh, if you, just the Hebrew name, it means God is my judge. Belteshazzar, which was a name given to him, means Bel is my protector. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. All right. Hananiah, which means my god is gracious, was given the name Shadrach, which means a com, a com, the command of Aku, which is a Sumerian moon god. Mishael, which, which means who is, who is what God is, was given the name Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And then Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped, was given the name Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, which is again another one of the Babylonian gods. Imagine that. So not only were you given a new name, it was a name to insult your faith. It was a name to remind you of who was in charge and who was in power. The Babylonian names ridiculed the faith of the young men, and every time they called it, it reminded them of what the Babylonians thought about them and their God. Seems familiar? Now, it's hard to find any reference to a Christian that isn't loaded with judgment and condescension these days. We're constantly told our faith is unnecessary at best, or it's a hateful evil at worst. So there's that pressure that I think we share. Lastly, there's also the pressure to change our way of living. There's uh, something new I just read about, actually, uh, just over the weekend. Um, It's called quiet quitting. Have you heard of it? Okay. So essentially is, you know, that you don't just actually quit your job, but you do just enough to keep it. And so you're not invested in it. You just, you kind of give up, but you don't do it enough to get you fired. Um, But it's also, it's it's not just with work, but it's also applied to any relationship. You just do enough to, you don't get fired or you don't just, it doesn't end. You stop investing in it. And essentially that relationship or that work environment, um, if left on that way, it dies of malnutrition because there's no more investment in it. There is nothing about that that's Christ-like. Nothing about that that is Christ-like. So there's this pressure to change our way of living and how we do what we do. <clears throat> you know what I find fascinating about this whole story about these four young men? Is that uh, they never tried to escape and go back to Israel. Does that seem odd, interesting to you? That just they didn't. I realize it's a long way away, but I mean, man, why you'd think that that would be part of what they did But even so, they didn't just willingly conform to the Babylonian way of life. Now, after their names were changed and they were allotted king's food, the story continues in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defy himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself that way. Now, there's lots of speculation as to what Daniel thought was wrong with the food. We're not told as to what specifically was wrong with it. However, the word defile there is used. Okay, so that does tell us that it wasn't just because of health. And he wasn't like, you know, like, dude, I'm I'm a vegetarian. I can't, you know, you know, so he wasn't concerned about that. There was something there that he thought was right or wrong as it related to his relationship with God. That we know is clear. We don't know exactly what it was, but that was at the heart of it. Now, the official, Ashpenaz, he was skeptical because, again, he had been charged to make sure these guys learn what they need to learn, make sure they're strong and healthy. So if, if they look like, hey, they're not doing well, they're sick or they're weak or they're just, that's going to come back on him because he's not doing his job. So he you know, as out of self-preservation, he said, yeah, we, that's just not going to work, Daniel. You got to eat what the king's, you know, king has given you. Daniel, to his credit, <clears throat> he said, let's try it for 10 days. It's tried for ten days, and the Bible tells us then in verse nine, it says, "At the end of ten days, <coughs> they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food." <coughs> so Ashpenaz comes back and says, "Okay, we'll make it permanent, all right?" And so he took away the king's food and he gave them vegetables. It says and other things to eat that were acceptable. Then we read on that at the end of three years. The chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. So they'd gone through this training time. They three years of training and preparation. They're now presented to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. I love a good ending. Even while living in a world that was directly opposed to them and their faith, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah found a way to remain faithful to God. I believe the same is possible for us today as well. And when we do, when we choose to honor God and not go the way of the world, I believe God gives us insight and understanding to live effectively. While your circumstances might be different than Daniel's, I believe God honors faithfulness. God is pleased when we aren't willing to compromise our faith. Now put it another way, I think it's always a good thing to do the right thing. And when we honor God and not go the way of the world, we also find that God grants us favor with people. Notice that the four young men did not get angry and rebellious in their stand for God. They didn't say, we're going on a hunger strike. They didn't just get an attitude. They, ge- they graciously offered an alternative and a trial period. Man, there's so much wisdom in that approach. So much wisdom. You don't just oppose somebody. Say, hey, can we try something different? There's an alternative. And can we just see how it works and see if that will, will happen? Now, that wouldn't have happened had they behaved as someone who was hurt and angry. You know, if they just were rebellious and they said, I'm not going to do it. There's no way this story has the same ending, very different ending. Daniel was resolved in his heart, but he was gracious in his approach with the official. So my comments to us would be the same. Pray and ask God for an alternative and be gracious in our conversations with other people. Lastly, when we choose to honor him, God positions us to be a people of influence. I think like Daniel, you and I can become catalysts for redemptive change. We can be people of influence, effectively representing God in a broken world. We can be people who stand out because of how we relate to those who are different from us. We can serve those in need with a willing spirit and bold generosity and we can reflect the loving kindness of a good and loving God. We can stand strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning as we've begun this uh, um, series on Daniel to stand strong, it's uh, amazing to me. It's something so long ago, and the cultures are so different, but yet in some ways they're so similar. And Daniel found himself in a situation that many of us find ourselves in today, find ourselves in environments that aren't necessarily happy we are who we are. And so Father, my hope and prayer is that any of us here today who are in this situation, that we would be able to stand strong, like Daniel and, and the, the others, that we would be able to be gracious in our situation, that we'd be able to find creative ways to affirm our faith, affirm our relationship with you, And, Lord, that um, you would provide a way. And so, uh, God, again, we're just very grateful for all that you're doing in our life and uh, continue to put our hope and faith and trust in you. And it's the name of your son, Jesus, I pray. Amen.